Grab a seat. Amen. We want to experience the power of the resurrection of the Son of God. That's why we're here this morning. To celebrate the one who was crucified, who arrested death, and played the ultimate April Fool's joke on the devil. So that's what it's about. Resurrection Sunday. Jesus demonstrated his power over death through the empty tomb. That's power. And we talk a lot about power in our world today. Who has it? Who doesn't? Warren Buffett, one of the richest guys in the world. Does he have power? Yeah, unbelievable power. He just says something and it changes whole markets. But he's not Jesus. He's not going to rise from the dead. Oprah. Does Oprah have power? You bet. Unbelievable power. She makes careers. Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, Gail. Um, she once bought 10% of Weight Watchers, and in a single day, Weight Watchers stock went up 103%. Um, Oprah has amazing power, but she's not Jesus. Taylor Swift. Does T. Swift have power? Oh, 107 million followers on Instagram. She got a big reputation. Unbelievable power. She's got power. If you date Taylor Swift and then you break up with her, she will write a song about you and the whole world know what a big bag of scum you are. That's power. She's not Jesus. She can't save anybody. Benjamin Franklin. Whew. Oh, good old Ben. Has he got power? You bet. People kill for Benjamins. People lose their families over Benjamins. Some people spend all their time praying about having more Benjamins. Does money have power? Yes. But it ain't Jesus. There's only one name that in heaven and earth and under the earth that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. There's only one who overcame sin and death. There's only one who resurrected. Now, uh, I'm so glad you chose to spend Easter morning with us. Uh, we're a new church. We're like seven months old, and uh, we're all about two things, loving God and loving people. It's really simple for us. And before we kind of dive into our passage of Scripture this morning, I want to invite you back next week to our retro sermon series. Uh, next week is the 80s, and so it, we're going to have a great time. We've got some fun stuff planned. We're going to be throwing it back to the 80s and 90s the next couple of Sundays. It's just going to be great. It's in our normal 10 a.m. Uh, service time. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way into the Bible. And let me set the stage. Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified on Friday. The pain of the crucifixion was so intense that we had to invent another word to describe it. Excruciating. The word excruciating means ex from or out of uh, cruce, the cross. From the cross. He was buried early morning Saturday before the sun rose. And his followers, there was mourning, there was doubting. There were questions of like, did I just waste three and a half years of my life following this supposed Messiah? And then Sunday morning came. Some of Jesus' followers went to the tomb. Uh, they were women and they were going to anoint his body, but the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And angels told him that he has risen and they run to go tell everybody else. And this is where we pick up the story in Luke 24. It says this in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up 
and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together? They stood still, their faces downcast. The disciples here are walking away from Jerusalem, and they walked in brokenness, in disappointment, and in pain. They put all their hopes and dreams in Jesus, who had lost. The good guys lost. The bad guys won. Jesus was killed by the religious and political powers of the time. And these disciples walking that Easter morning away from it all with their hopes dashed. But amidst suffering, something new and beautiful can arise. Suffering and loss have this extraordinary capacity to alert us and awaken us to something new, to awaken us to the gift that life is. Uh, this is a photo of my four-year-old son, Dex. And uh, a little over a year ago when he was three, I was going through just a super tough time at work. Um, and it was just weighing me down, and I thought about it all the time. And I was so, whenever I started thinking about that certain person who made me so upset, it would just arise all those feelings as if they had just hurt me. And so I'm downstairs playing monster trucks with my son. He's making him do flips and stuff. And I start thinking about this situation that just isn't leaving my mind. And I just kind of do like that grunt exhale, like that, ah. Just like that, right? Have you ever been there like where you're somewhere else, but you're still thinking about whatever happened in that person, and, it's, and it affects you to the point where you just go, ah, I do that grunt, that exhale, the middle of playing with Dex, and then he says, what's wrong, Daddy? And I'm like, oh, you're so perceptive, son. Uh, and I took it as like a God moment, and so I begin to tell my three-year-old son all my problems, why I'm upset uh, and he's listening intently. He's making eye contact with me and he's nodding his head in agreement. And I'm like, this is the Lord here. And so in the simplest of terms, I just start venting all of this stuff to my son, Dex. Pour out my heart. I finished talking. Now I'm waiting for his response. This is the moment that the Lord is going to use my three-year-old son to speak a prophetic word into the life of, of this situation. What's going to happen? And he picks up his monster truck and he goes, this is Dragon, and he's going to do a backflip. <laughs> I sunk my head in exasperation like, oh. But as I stared at the floor, I began to think that Dex really was being prophetic at that moment. My son was not bogged down by problems outside the house. He was living in the moment. And that monster truck is going to do a backflip, and I don't care what's going on at work, Dad. <laughs> God was saying to me in that moment, be fully here in this moment. I often let a frustration at work hinder my time at home. I let life-draining people and life-draining events hinder my life-giving relationships. But amidst suffering, something beautiful can arise. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I was unaware that God was with me, walking beside me on that difficult road, showing me the most important things in life. God is always walking beside us, whether we know it or not. And that should change us. Do you see your life as something you create, or do you see your life as something that is happening to you? Because how you answer that question really does determine the trajectory of your life. 
God is in the new creation business. If your story is heading in the wrong direction, write a different story. God gives us these empty pages and we get the chance to partner with him in writing a new one. What story will your life tell? Perhaps the Lord is calling you to author a different story, to turn the page. And it's going to be hard. There's going to be difficulties to overcome. All good stories have that. These disciples, like you and I, are missing what's right in front of them by focusing in on the wrong thing. And the story continues. And Jesus, much like my son Dex on the living room floor, asks these disciples, what are you guys so upset about? Verse 18 says this, one of them, said, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. These disciples are in disarray. They're walking away from God or the God that they thought they knew. That They had hoped he was the one, but he was crucified. You almost get a sense that, that they're feeling sorry for themselves. Listen, nobody is better at feeling sorry for you than you. You're great at it, right? No one's better at feeling sorry for me than me. I spin these things in my head. That shouldn't have happened. Have you ever been there? I haven't gotten what I deserve. My life shouldn't have gone this way. It's not my fault. We've all been there. Feeling sorry for yourself is totally natural. It's just not helpful. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you turn the page to write something new. It actually hinders you. And in all of my years of ministry, I've noticed this. The cure for self-loathing is not about trying harder. It's about loving others. When we move our attention away from us and our problems and we serve and bless those whose problems are way worse than ours, we're the ones who are transformed. We're changed. It's like if you were stuck in a tunnel, a subway tunnel, during a sudden blackout. You can respond to the fear and darkness by either using the remaining battery life on your phone to play a game like Fortnite or something, and you might be entertained. It might make the time in the darkness go by faster, or you can use your phone as a light to see others around you, to see the contour of your environment, perhaps to search out for a greater source of light and help others find it as well. And as we walk towards that light, we begin to see others around us, not as distractions, but as people made in the image of God who are dearly loved. And as we pursue God, we grow. If you have encountered a Christian who has turned away from real, concrete acts of love and service to other people and traded that for a system of beliefs that makes them feel better about themselves, they may have seen the light but they're misusing it. They're using it for themselves when it was meant to shine around them to illuminate others. They're playing games instead of using their light to bless those around them. That's religious living. And Jesus calls us out of religious living. He calls us out of rebellious living. Yes, we hear a lot about that. But he also calls us out of this religious, self-centered nature of our faith. Loving others has been and will always be the greatest indicator of our love for God. Always. Not long ago, my wife Sarah and I were talking late night in bed, and 
were talking about the kids, and I'm not sure how it came up, but my beautiful wife was recalling what my best qualities were. I love the direction of this conversation, okay? And uh, she's so insightful. She said that my best three qualities were this, in this order, how much I love God, how much I love her, how much I love her kids. Brilliant. Now, I'm not trying to float my own boat here. I'm trying to float hers. Um, I'm, I, I'm trying, she, she, she was onto something there. She tells me that the, my best qualities are, have nothing to do with like how stunningly attractive I am, uh, how, you know, washboard my abs are, has nothing to do with that, has everything to do with my capacity to love. And that's not even me. That's Christ in me. As we grow, he increases our capacity to love. Or you could say that our heart gets bigger. Some of you with kids knows this, know this to be true, right? You love your spouse, and you think there's no way that you have any more time or energy to give than you already are giving, and then you have a baby, right? And you stay up all night to feed your child. You spend your time trying to make them smile. You change diapers, and you help them walk and experience joy. And just when you think you could not fit another more ounce of sacrifice and love into your life, you have another baby. <laughs> what happens? Your heart expands. Your heart grows. You don't give less love to your family because you add a new child. No, your heart grows bigger. And as we grow closer to Christ, our capacity to love grows bigger. That's Christ-likeness. As we continue to pursue him, we just may start loving some crazy people. We should, maybe even our enemies. When you begin to follow Jesus, you come as you are. You are loved. You are accepted as is. You don't need to get your life right before you go to Jesus. He loves you. It's come as you are, but it's not stay as you are. Your heart should be getting bigger and becoming more loving and grace-filled and merciful and compassionate in every aspect of your life. As we follow Jesus, our capacity of love should grow. If it doesn't, if you're judgmental and you're hard-hearted, I contend that you just might not be following Jesus. Jesus says you'll know that you're my disciples by your love, not by the t-shirts you wear, not by your church attendance, how much money you give, how many old ladies you help across the street. It has everything to do with your love. It's a journey. Jesus walks beside us. Back to the Emmaus Road, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love that line. Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked with us? Uh, their eyes weren't open uh, during the theology chat. Their eyes were opened when he broke bread and served them. Jesus opened the eyes of these disciples 2,000 years ago and he's still opening eyes today. And over the past several years, God has opened my eyes to some things. This, this sense that when I grew up, I was always taught that it was, everything revolved around whether or not I get my ticket stamped to heaven. That everything I read in the scriptures had to do with that. 
that it wasn't anything about this earth. We evacuate this earth. It's all about going to heaven when we die. And over these last several years, God has just renewed a, a, a new sense of what the kingdom of God is about. That, that it's not so much about leaving this earth and going to heaven there. It's about bringing the kingdom of God and bringing heaven here. In every aspect of our lives, the salvation of the Lord is not an evacuation project. It is a restoration project. And we need to be all about that. Let me put it this way. If I asked you to tell me the story of the birth of one of your children, every parent here would be able to rattle off like that, right? And every birth story has some crazy stuff going down, right? Gave birth in the back of a cab. Dad passes out during the labor. Mom's inventing new curse words as she's told to push and to breathe. Then I, we talk about the first time you held the baby. And inevitably, you grab that little hand and you would say, oh, it's so small. As if you were surprised that it wasn't big. <laughs> like that would be so weird. But we all do it. We marvel at the smallness of this hand. You hold up that hand, you stare at it, and you talk about how small it is. And you just can't get over the miracle of new life. Now let's say you finish telling me this beautiful story of childbirth. And then I ask you, what kind of car were you driving to the hospital that day? What, what shirt did you have on? How much was in your checking account when you went to the hospital that day? You could probably answer those questions. You could probably research it and figure it out, but you'd be going, why are you saying that? You're missing the point. The point is this. What you were wearing, what you were driving, your net worth is irrelevant in light of the memory of your child's birth. They are not what ultimately matters. How much we can accomplish. Real life is found in understanding the power of moments. Working harder, spending more hours to try and obtain more things is actually not where the life is. Jesus opens our eyes to see that you can't get life through things. We must not forget that it is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It is the moment that lends significance to things. This is what God's been opening my eyes to. It wasn't the car you were driving. That's just a car. But that day that you drove home, that was the moment you saw your girl for the first time. And you rode home together. And you put her in that car seat. And you held her just so fragilely, right? Nervous. The shirt you were wearing, who cares? But that was the shirt that when you look at the pictures of the first time you held your baby, that was the shirt you were wearing. It is the memory, the moment that makes the shirt or the car significant, not the other way around. And we might be saying amen to that over and over again, but our lives don't reflect that reality. Uh, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, we're working for that dollar. We're going for those Benjamins. We act as if that's the most important thing, and God's saying right in front of you, this moment, right here, right now, your loved ones, that person across the street, though, that's what matters. That's what matters. Time, moments, the present, something unfolding right here in our life, in our midst. That's where the life is. Jesus opens our eyes to the supernatural that's already around us. Jesus doesn't divide the world up into the common and the sacred. He gives us eyes to see the sacred in the common. That's what he opens our eyes to. These disciples, their eyes are opened 
A common thing that every first century Palestinian Jew would do is break bread. And Jesus breaks bread and their eyes are open to the supernatural already evident right before them. There's no such thing as a common drive to school with your kids. There's hope in their eyes. There's anticipation. There's excitement. There's beauty. There's love. He comes to help us see things more and more how they actually are that life matters. Every hour is unique, and the only one given at this moment is exclusive and endlessly precious. For Jesus, it's never just a job. It's never just a conversation or an exchange of words. The abundant life he offers us is all around, and we're called to bring more of it into our world. I want to even in the worship band to come up, and we'll close with this. I have a, I have a 10-month-old daughter named Ivy, and I know, I know, she's the best. <laughs> She's the best. I'm imagining me one year from now, seeing her in her playpen, kind of jumping up and down, throwing a fit. And I walk by her and she reaches out her chubby little hands and she says, dad, dad, out, out. And she's crying. It would be so natural for me to reach down into the playpen, extend my arms. But just as I do, my, I hear this, eh. that's the sound that my wife makes when my kids are doing something they shouldn't be doing. Eh. And so I reach down, and she goes, no, Ivy, you are in time out. You can't come out to dad dad right now. Now, I'm at a loss at what to do, right? Her, her tears and her chubby little hands are reaching out of the playpen into my heart and soul, tugging at everything inside me. But firmness as a parent disciplining their child and correcting behavior, right, must, it, that can't be taken lightly. That's the problem of the law. But love always finds a way. I cannot take Ivy out of the playpen, but a solution happens when I crawl into the playpen myself. <laughs> now, I will probably break that playpen when I get in it, but I don't care. I'm next to my girl. Now, I realize in this illustration, I'm the sweet, loving, playful dad, and my wife is the lawgiver who throws it down. Okay, it's not like that. It is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my wife is so great and compassionate as well. I love you. We, do, we don't get the resurrection without first getting the incarnation. God in a bod. God becoming human for us. Jesus goes into our playpen when all of humanity is crying out for him. He's crying out because he loves you. He's not distant, he's near. He's calling you to growth, to an ever-expanding heart that propels you in your journey towards loving God and loving others. A journey to see the sacred within the common. God didn't primarily tell us who he was like in a book. He told us in a person. His name is Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. God, I pray that in Jesus' name, that the reckless love that you demonstrated on that cross and rising again, that that reckless love would permeate us, that we'd be blown away by it, and that it would change us, that our heart would grow, that when we think, I just can't love and I just can't give sacrificially anymore, may your spirit awaken your love to make our heart expand, that we love all, that we welcome the stranger, that we bless our enemies, 
that we pray for those who persecute us, that we are able to truly wish blessings on those who wish to do harm. God, we pray in Jesus' name that that reckless love, that scandalous love would transform us, that we would be a people who truly love you and we demonstrate that by how we love others. God, I pray in Jesus' name that every person in this place, God, every child that's represented, every family, God, I pray that that your love so fills them up that they are able to pour out that love in ever-increasing ways. Grow our hearts, God. May our hearts never be as small as they are this morning. May they only get bigger. And we need that. We need you. We need your spirit to do it in us. We thank you for your reckless love. We love you, God. We thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you're not done yet. You're still moving. You're still active that the tomb is empty, and that you're alive in us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close and declare the reckless love of the Father?